Well, Patrick only read the first half of this chapter. We're going to try to cover all of it, so we need to pray uh, for a, a good pace. Uh, often on Sundays when, after we eat lunch, I'll say, I'm out of words, guys, and it's time for a nap. And I most certainly will say that today, I think, by the time we make our way through uh, chapter two. But it's a very significant chapter, um, and I uh, look forward to jumping into it with you. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word today, for the great reminder of um, the everlasting kingdom that belongs to the saints. Uh, and I pray that today you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from this chapter uh, and increase our faith, hope, and love as a result. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. It would be hard to uh, explain how majestic Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be to others. He was the most powerful leader on the earth. He was revered. He was wealthy. He was famous. He was viewed like a god uh, in the eyes of some. And yet, in many ways, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is like us. And we see one of those ways in chapter 2, namely, that he had some sleepless nights. Nebuchadnezzar, as we're going to see, had some strange dreams. Uh, and he had some reoccurring nightmares. How many of you have ever had a strange dream before? Maybe last night you had a strange dream. Maybe if you're a Clemson fan, for example. Um, <laughs> That, but it actually was true that NC State won. Like, it's not a dream. That really happened. Uh, I, I've had a lot of strange dreams. Usually they revolve around sports, family, preaching, and traveling. Um, recently I dreamed I was the third base coach for the Washington Nationals, and we were playing against the Braves in the playoffs, and that's how I knew it was not real. Um, <laughs> I, I dream about not arriving at my destination on time. There are many, many, many nightmares about preaching, of getting up and not having anything to say, or uh, books of the Bible were missing that I was supposed to preach out of. I'm so happy that Daniel is right here in front of me, and, and, and there it is. Uh, Michael Britt told us a dream last year that I'll never forget. It was around budget season, and uh, he dreamed that he won the lottery. And uh, being the generous type that he is, he, he, after getting some financial consultation with Rob Barton, uh, he, he uh, brought us all into my office for a, a staff meeting, and he told everybody that they were getting a personal gift, several hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, from, from Michael, and he paid off our church building, and then he paid off everybody's uh, uh, mortgage on their home, and he started going department uh, by department of, uh, you know, discipleships getting a million dollars, and women's ministries getting a million dollars, and, and we were about to pray when, when Zach says, hey, before we pray, I don't, I don't want to be greedy, but can I get another million dollars for missions? And, uh, and that's, that's where the dream ended. Uh, very entertaining stories to just to talk uh, to one another about our dreams. And what do we make of these dreams? Uh, other than we hope Michael wins the lottery. <laughs> the best most of us can do with, with dreams is attribute it to anxiety or our own personal interests or our wild imaginations. I'm certainly no dream specialist. I think uh, you know that, that uh, pastors don't get training in dream interpretation, at least with schools I've been to. Uh, one guy went up to a well-known pastor, though, and said, Pastor, can you interpret my dream? I keep having this reoccurring dream. And he said, well, what is your... Uh, he said, no, I don't know how to interpret dreams, but why don't you humor me and tell me what your dream is about? And he went on to describe about how he was dreaming about Eva Longoria every night when he went to bed of desperate housewives. And uh, the pastor probed a little bit, and he says, well, do you read before you go to bed, or do you watch something on TV? And he says, yeah, well, I watch TV. And, well, what do you watch before you go to bed? I watch Desperate Housewives. <laughs> and he says, well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that God wants you to watch something else before you, uh, before you go to bed. That, that was his most successful attempt at, at interpreting a dream. 
And in chapter 2, we find a guy who can interpret dreams because God gives him the ability to do so, Daniel. And it's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, but this dream is different than any of our strange dreams in the fact that this dream is a dream that will actually come true. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about the history of the world and successive empires, but how one kingdom will stand forever, the kingdom of our God. And so what we have in chapter 2 is like a lot of Daniel. This is what I might call a, a macro truth. We receive a kingdom as God's people. God's kingdom endures forever. And this macro truth should impact all the micro aspects of our lives. This truth should impact everything about daily life. So let's, let's jump into it together, and I pray that it would, would give you a great sense of hope and encouragement as you think about uh, the, the, the kingdoms of this age and you think about the, the power players of this age and kind of the, the age in which we're in. What we have to look forward to is this kingdom that uh, is unshaken, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar dreams about and what Daniel interprets and what some of the kids uh, tried to draw in the first service. The first scene I want you to see here is the futility of paganism. Nebuchadnezzar, it opens up saying that it's the second year of his reign and his spirit is troubled and he, his sleep left him. <laughs> it's an interesting way to say you can't sleep. My sleep left me. Um, and so we, we find him here two years into his reign. He, he has, uh, he's dealing with a Western foe historically. He's got a lot of pressure, got a lot of stress, and he's restless. Just because you have all the money and all the power doesn't mean you have peace, right? It, what a contrast this is with chapter 6. Daniel is in the lion's den. He can sleep. Nebuchadnezzar's in a palace, and he can't sleep because there's a great sense of, of peace in Daniel and a great sense of restlessness in Nebuchadnezzar. He's a very erratic king. Occasionally, he gets things right, but often he's maniacal, and he's so wild in this chapter that he attempts to put all of the quote-unquote wise men to death. And because his, his sleep is, is leaving him, he, he summons his, his court staff, verse 2, <clears throat> made up of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, uh, so that they could come and tell him his dreams. Now these sorcerers, magicians, enchanters, they would use dark arts, um, incantations. They would observe the position of the stars in order to interpret various events and various things in the future. And uh, it says in verse 4, and as a side note, you may have a footnote that says in chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 7, verse 28, it's one of the one places we have Aramaic originally, the original text uh, in, in uh, the book of Daniel. And there are some theories about that, but I don't want to get into that detail. Um, yeah, email somebody smart about that. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, the guys come up uh, to uh, the king. And they say in verse 4, something that's a bit ironic, O king, live forever. Because the dream, uh, that's just a common way, of course, that they address the king. But the dream is going to reveal that he will not live forever. That's exactly what the dream is to say. But there is a king that will live forever. And we'll see that unfold. And you notice how the king uh, says to them in verse 5, a threat. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. Notice that now. He hasn't told them what the dream is. If he would tell them the dream, then they could at least speculate and say, well, this, this is the interpretation. They could go look at their dream interpretation manual and come back with some possible interpretation. But he gives them an impossible task by saying, no, I want you to first tell me what the dream was and then interpret that dream. 
And if you can't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. We should not envy the court staff, okay? <laughs> they work for a very irrational boss. How many of you have worked for an irrational boss? Okay, don't raise your hand if they're in the room. But um, here's Daniel. He is, he is in this court with this king who says, if you can't make known a dream and interpretation, uh, I'm going to kill you. So he's an agitated person, and you know that agitated people agitate people. As we often say, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And here, if Nebuchadnezzar ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, the guys feel very uh, incompetent, and indeed they were to do this. Verse 6, as Nebuchadnezzar goes on, he says, But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they try to play the little stall game. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and the interpretation and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And you see their sense of absolute desperation and something that is a pointer, I think, to something about humanity. Notice in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Well, apparently there was one. We're going to see that in a minute. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Hmm. Very striking. They say, unless the gods came down in the flesh, you know, there's nobody that can interpret this. This is the futility of paganism. As uh, Freud put it, mankind is incurably religious. That's why you see superstition and false religion and paganism practiced all over the earth. As Romans 1 says, we believe there is a God by creation in, in our nature, but we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And so what humanity does with this sense of uh, need and ache for a God, for the divine, they, they do as Paul, when he was preaching to the uh, uh, Athenians on Mars Hill, he says that mankind is, is groping and trying to feel their way toward God. That they know there is a God, but they, they're, they're, they're blinded because of their sin. And in this case, it looks like sorcery and, uh, and magicians and, and so on. And yet they, they express something that everyone really longs for, and that is, wouldn't it be great if God showed up in the flesh? And he has. And this is our need. We don't need pagan theology. What we need is Jesus Christ. God has revealed to us how to be saved. And if we look to any other source of salvation, other than what God has revealed to us in the pages of his word and in the person of his son, those efforts are as, as futile as these, these court magicians. We cannot find salvation outside of the God who made us. And that is why Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Nebuchadnezzar was restless. And you and I are restless until we come to Jesus Christ and we find in him everything we've ever longed for. 
What these guys should have done is what they did in Ephesus in Acts 19 when they burned their magic books after confessing Jesus as Lord. It's the futility of paganism. We as Christians do not live on speculation or our imagination. We live on God's revelation. We can know some things for certain because God has shown it to us. I used to live in New Orleans for about eight years, and many of you know down in the French Quarter they have the tarot card tables. And we would talk to those folks uh, periodically. And, and one time my friend uh, David decided to set up his own table. And it said, we'll tell your future for free. <laughs> and just uh, there with a the Bible, just uh, opening up, having these conversations. Well, that's what we've got. We've got a clear word. Everything else is just groping, trying to feel our way blindly toward the God who made us. Thanks be to God that he's revealed these things. So we see the futility of, of this pagan thought. Secondly, notice here, the faithfulness of God's servants. The decree that if this dream cannot be known and interpreted, uh, if it can't be, then people will be killed. This now includes Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel is in a crisis. He's already in exile. He's just a teenager. He's in exile. And now it's told that he will be destroyed as well. And you notice how Daniel expresses a real faithfulness to his God. Firstly, by his calmness and his prudence. Notice verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And how does Daniel respond? Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. He's not freaking out. Everyone's panicking. Except Daniel, he responds calmly, prudently, with to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. He buys himself a little time, which in and of itself was bold, given what happened to the court magicians who wanted to do that. But, but Daniel is, is confident in his God. He's confident that God will show him the interpretation. And he responds with calmness. That's a great witness in a world that's so out of control. There's somebody that's peaceful. There's somebody that's not losing his mind. He's, he's, he's poised. He's concerned, as we're going to see, he, goes, he has to pray. But there is a certain sense of, of peace. It reminds me of a story that uh, David Helms tells about the Civil War and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, that confession being a great historical document, document of, our, of our faith. He says in this particular scene that in the Civil War, the cannonballs are flying everywhere and, and guys are running from cover in, in, in the midst of this chaotic, turbulent time. But there were two particular soldiers who were just standing straight up, not moved, and they noticed each other. And when they, they walked towards each other, and the guy says, what is the chief end of man? <laughs> right as cannonballs were going around and, you know, the bullets and everything, what's the chief end of man? And the guy responded, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he says, I knew you were a Westminster man. <laughs> and just kept on going, you know. And it's this marvelous scene of what it looks like to live out your theology. Because you can confess God is sovereign, but you actually live like a functional atheist, freaking out all the time. Or you can actually do the Daniel thing and just say, I know that God reigns. He sets up kings. He puts them down. He's in charge of all the seasons of life. 
Therefore, I'm just going to think, what can I, what's a good prudent decision here? Maybe a range of time. That'll give us some time to pray. And he's just calm. It's bad news that he's received. I've always been struck by Psalm 112 about the, the godly man. Verse 7, Psalm 112. He is not afraid of bad news. <laughs> what's a godly man? That doesn't always make it on the list, does it? A godly man is one who doesn't, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I want to be like that. Let us trust in Daniel's God when we receive bad news. Prayer. That's the second mark of his faithfulness. Notice in verses 17 to 19, Daniel goes and gets his friends. And he says in verse 18, let us seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. He doesn't know what the dream is and obviously doesn't know how to interpret it. So he does the best possible thing in this moment. He seeks mercy from God. Daniel doesn't throw a fit. We noted this last week. What Daniel does is really the best form of protest. Prayer. Prayer is holy protest. We don't like the way things are. What are we going to do about it? Daniel doesn't break a bunch of windows. <laughs> He's not going off on social media. He's not starting riots. He seeks mercy from the God of heaven. Because God can do more in one moment of our prayer than we can do with years of all that other stuff. He says, guys, here's my plan. We got to pray. We got to seek mercy. And get this, teenagers in the room. It's this picture, four teenagers praying. In a crisis, in a moment of desperation. That wasn't me when I was a teenager. But what a model Daniel gives for us in a crisis, seeking mercy from the God of heaven. Both of those phrases are very important. God is merciful so we can cry out to him. Later, Daniel prays that very thing in Daniel chapter 9, a very long prayer. He says, we do not make our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. And he's the God of heaven. That's a title that Nehemiah uses all throughout the book of Nehemiah when he's praying to the God of heaven to answer him on earth. And we have both of these beautiful characteristics of our God. He is in heaven. He has all authority, but he's merciful. He sits high. He looks low. We cry out to him in our crisis. And as a result, in this case, verse 19, he answers Daniel. I mean, he had no hope of knowing what this dream was. And he's going to be killed. Then it says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. It was a gift of God. Daniel prayed, God answered. Later, Daniel gives all the credit to God because all the credit goes to God. It's a gift from God. We're not told exactly how this vision, how it played out. Like, it's possible that Daniel was, received this while he was sleeping, which would have been a great mark of faith, wouldn't it? What did you do after you had a death sentence, Daniel? Oh, I prayed and went to bed. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to live, isn't it? As Luther used to say all the time, pray and let God worry. Let God worry. Well, as a result of this, now Daniel worships God. That's the third mark of his faithfulness. He worships. And as it's been pointed out, this little section of worship doesn't need to be in the text for the story to continue. Like when it says that the vision was given to Daniel, you could just pick it up in verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch and so on. But what's included is what's really central to the chapter and what you may even argue is central to the book of Daniel. That's Daniel wants us to see something theologically about God 
to, to stop and pause and think about the character of God and to worship him for who he is and what he's done. And so it's a beautiful passage on worship. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. This is our God. Wisdom and might is his. He governs the world in wisdom and might. And one of the ways you see that expressed, his wisdom and might, is verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. That's wonderfully encouraging. Think about this. God reigns over every era of history, including ours. He changes times and seasons. This is encouraging when you're in a hard time. And it's humbling when you're in an easy time. That we don't know what kind of season we're going to be in. But if Daniel can make it through exile, we can make it through this situation we're in today. God is in charge of seasons and times. He's in charge of kings as well. He sets them up and he puts them down. You remember how Jesus looked at Pilate and he said, You would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. And he gives wisdom to the wise. To those who seek it, he gives wisdom knowledge and understanding. He's the God who reveals deep and hidden things, right? He knows that which is inaccessible to humans. It may come to a surprise to many people that God knows more than you, right? <laughs> he reveals these hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells with him. Statements of his wisdom, Statements of his sovereignty. Consequently, he wants to thank his God. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. He gives thanks to the God of fathers, to the God of the promises. He's given Daniel wisdom and might. He knows the source of his wisdom. It's not from him. It doesn't emanate from him. It comes from his God. And he has responded to his prayer. He's given him the thing he asked for. And this spirit of worship continues now in the narrative in verses 24 to verse 30, as Daniel now is very quick to give credit to God for this. Let's read it quickly together, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, to whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring in before the king, and I will show the king its interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was uh, Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. <laughs> That's crazy, man. He says, it's not me, king, but there's a God in heaven who reigns in Babylon. He reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, come thoughts of what would be after this. So it's a dream about the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. So Daniel could have really played this up for his own self-advancement, but he's quick to say, it's not because I'm wise, it's because God has shown it to me. But in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Well, this is a great picture of Daniel's faithfulness. In this crisis, in this death sentence, we find him acting calmly, 
wisely, prayerfully, worshipfully. Now, thirdly, we see finally the frailty of human power and the firmness of God's kingdom. The frailty of human power. We haven't yet disclosed what the dream is. There's been all this drama about his dream. Well, what was the dream? Well, it's very simple. Kids, if you're drawing the picture, this is the, the picture. It's not a swimming pool. Um, it's a giant statue. Giant statue made up of four parts. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And then there's one stone that destroys the statue. And we see how this all unfolds. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Here is the head. The head of this image was fine gold. The chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze. Its legs of iron, its, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, we're going to see as the thing unfolds, verse 38, the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, where he says, you are the head, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then he is explaining successive kingdoms that would come after him with these other images of, uh, of metal. Traditionally, it's been said, and this is good, good grounds for this reading, I think, based on the rest of Daniel, because he goes on later to talk about Persia and Greece, that the, uh, the silver, the chest and the arms, represents the, the Persians. The bronze, uh, the middle and the thighs represent Greece. And the iron, the legs, represent Rome. Its feet mixed with clay and iron, meaning though it was so dominant, it wouldn't last forever. It would eventually also crumble. So Medo-Persia is bench pressing. You've got, uh, you know, the, the Greeks are, are doing the core exercises. Uh, the Romans are killing the squats. Uh, that, that's the Daniel 2 workout plan uh, that you may want to get on. Um, now, others say, well, that we don't have any explicit grounds to interpret those other three empires as such, that this is more of a philosophy of history rather than a precise history. It doesn't really matter. What's clear is that Babylon is first, and that's what is, is addressed to. It's addressed to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. And what is equally clear is that there is a stone that's going to come out of nowhere that's going to crush all the statues, all the empires. And you see that part in what's next as he goes on to say, verse 34, And you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It's, a, it's a, a poetic, beautiful description of a divine stone, a unique origin. The stone that looks small at first will smash the statue. As Jesus would say, a small beginning like a mustard seed, but would fill the earth. Notice how Daniel describes it. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. What a glorious picture here of small beginning of the kingdom of God, and it grows to cover the whole earth. Meanwhile, the human kingdoms of this age, they may look big and impressive for a moment, but then they're gone. That's the point of Daniel 2. Kings and kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. Rulers come and go, but Jesus reigns forever. 
As, as John said in Revelation, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. So we should never really be that impressed with political power. We should be impressed with Jesus Christ. 36. This was the dream, he says. Now I will tell you the king its interpretation. You, O king, O king of kings, to whom, be God, uh, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. You notice that it's attributed to God giving Nebuchadnezzar this reign. 38. And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. This is language from the Garden of Eden, of dominion, of authority. You are the head of gold. And then he goes on to talk about these successive kingdoms. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and we'll see that in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar rules, and he's gone. In just a moment, the Persians take over. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. If this is Greece, this is referring to Alexander the Great. Later in the book, we read about the prediction of Greece and its mighty empire. And there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. And if this is Rome, this would make sense as the mighty Roman Empire. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. But this was not the everlasting kingdom. Rome wasn't, and that's how he describes it, as one that would eventually crumble. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage and they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So this is the vision of the kingdoms on earth. Big, impressive for a moment, and then they fade away. But get this picture. Verses 44 to 45. And in those days... And in those days, of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. My, my. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. We've already been told in verse 35 that this kingdom is universal. It will cover the whole earth. And now we're told it's indestructible and it is victorious. Kings and kingdoms come and go. But in the backwater little town in the Middle East, a virgin conceived and gave birth to a son. The stone fashioned out of nowhere. As the angel announced, you shall call his name Jesus, and God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. How will this happen? <laughs> well, God will do it. Jesus is the stone fashioned out of nowhere. This lines up with other stone references, right? The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. What a picture. You saw in verse 45, he says, cut from a mountain by no human hand. I think this refers to both the first and second coming of Christ. I don't think you have to make a, a choice here that the kingdom is inaugurated at his first coming and it will be consummated at his second coming. We're in an already not yet context, aren't we? It certainly didn't look like Jesus was going to crush uh, the, the kingdoms of this age when he was crucified. 
Many were disappointed because they wanted Jesus to conquer Rome politically. But we know that his death was not the end. On Sunday, the King of Glory rose from the dead. And he gave his disciples this commission to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the whole earth. And since that time, men and women from around the world have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, confessing him alone as Lord. And one day our Christ will return visibly and his glory will cover the whole earth, as Daniel says, as a great mountain filling the whole earth. The message of Daniel 2, in the end, the stone smashes the statue. And he's writing this and they're receiving this while they are in exile. This is meant to encourage weary saints. Are you weary? Who among us is not weary? Let us get our eyes on our Savior and our kingdom. In the end, Jesus wins. And all who are with him win. It may look like you're losing right now, but it's going to be all right. This is but slight and momentary what we have. We, we have received, as the author of Hebrews says, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, therefore let us be thankful. That's an important verse. You remember Paul says to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we give thanks in all circumstances? Circumstances are not great. You remember that you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Give thanks for that. You wake up in the morning, you got your long to-do list, your heart's saddened by news reports that you hear, you feel discouraged, you feel defeated, you, you, but you get your coffee and you walk outside in this beautiful autumn weather in North Carolina and you remind yourself, I have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let your heart rejoice in that. I don't want you to do that every day this week. You don't have to do the coffee, that's your call. I'll have two cups and I'll, I may do it twice, right? To, that, this, is, this is a macro, as I say, a macro truth. Let it impact the various aspects of your life. Such a vivid chapter. Now, Daniel gets a promotion. That's not the point of the chapter. But he does get a promotion. <laughs> and I love that Daniel wants to promote his friends with him. That's a good friend. Like, if I'm getting elevated, I'm bringing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I want them to come along with me. The king occasionally gets some things right, and you'll see more of that as the chapters unfold. But here, he says some true things about God. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Friends, Daniel chapter 2 is true. And because of that, there's no reason for us to freak out. There's every reason for us to rejoice today and praise our God, to praise our King. And I think it's instructive just to see how Daniel here is a light in a very dark place. I mean, can you imagine living here in Babylon, surrounded by all of this paganism, surrounded by this, and, and being under this maniacal ruler? And what is Daniel doing? He's bearing witness in a dark place. My friends, history is going somewhere. 
Daniel chapter 2 is showing us that and that God is in charge of history. He raises up kings and he takes them down. He alone reveals mysteries. And if you're not a Christian, I think the point for you is do not look to any human leader for your salvation. Do not look to anyone else or anything else other than Jesus Christ for salvation. You're either with the stone or you're with the statue, right? And in the end, the stone wins. And I think I'd like to be with the stone. And the good news is that Jesus will have you. You can receive him because none of us are here because of our wisdom. We're like Daniel. God opened up our eyes. He brought us to himself. <laughs> We've done nothing to attribute, as it's been said, to our salvation except the sin that necessitated Jesus' death on the cross. That's what we, we brought to the table. And Jesus has cleansed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us this kingdom. And soon, John says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So let's live this day in light of that day, saying with the saints for many years, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Praise be to God. Father, thank you for showing us how things will unfold so that we may align our lives properly with the truth of your kingdom, that we may not despair in this life, that discouragement would not overwhelm us because we know in the end Jesus wins and all who are with him win. And we thank you, Jesus, for giving us this salvation, this hope, this kingdom. May we be faithful citizens of your kingdom while we live here on earth in our exile. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.